Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. This is AFR podcast, and today we're going to be talking about cancer. Uh, I've got four members of AFR that have had cancer, and they're going to be sharing their stories with us today. So this is uh, Marco Lopez, uh, driver uh, for AFR. I've been a firefighter now going on 18 years. Um, I was diagnosed with cancer in January of this year, but um, I found out actually through the grace of God through a employee physical downtown. Um, went from annual physical being hazmat um, tech, you know, we have to do OSHA yearly physicals, kind of put it off. I actually did put it off twice and I finally went in November, um, did all my testing and then the doctor came, Dr. Perea. She came in and did my head-to-toe assessment, and while filling on my lymph nodes, she found a nice little lump in the side of my neck, which I had never noticed. I was asymptomatic, had no issues. She started giving me questions, any recent weight loss, trouble sleeping, any night sweats. No, 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 everything's fine. She's like, okay, well, what's this lump on your neck? And I asked her, like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, So felt it, and it was very palpable. She said, just follow up with your primary physician. I saw him, I think, the week later. This was right before Thanksgiving, and he wanted to do some tests on it. So they did like a seat. They did a scan, I think, first, and it was inconclusive, and then they wanted to do a biopsy, and they did the biopsy. And so I think after the biopsy was taking place, that was put me in January. In January 13th, I found out that it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, so I met with my doctor at the time, or the oncologist at the time, and he said that with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and being that I was so asymptomatic, that that was something that people have lived with for years. He's like, well, we've had people that live with this for 10, 15, 20 years that never gotten it treated. And that was kind of his recommendation. We weren't going to treat anything. But he wanted to do a PET scan. So I did a PET scan, um, I think in January, February. And they found a lump on the left side of my thigh, on the left side of my leg. And that was a large B-cell lymphoma. So just because of the fact that it had spread and this was large B cell, large B cell is a lot more aggressive than the one that I had in my, in my neck. So that bought me chemotherapy. He said, that's something we can't ignore. We have to treat it. So um, started chemotherapy, I think March, March 9th was my first one. Um, he said, we'll do six rounds of chemotherapy, which included five different drugs. Um, and that was once every three weeks. So went through it. After the fourth round of chemotherapy, we did another PET scan to see how things were and where I stood. And, um, you know, thank God that he said that um, there was no any, there was no more active cancer cells. So we were able to cut down the chemotherapy from the five drugs down to just one drug, which is rituximab. Um, And for the last two rounds of chemotherapy, I just got that one drug and no side effects, no issues, no problems with it. Uh, went actually perfectly fine. Um, met with my doctor. He said, you know, going forward, we can do preventive chemotherapy, which we will do for the next two years, or we cannot do anything at all. And if you if it comes back, that's the problem with this t- type of cancer is there high, high incidence of remission or coming back, I'm sorry. Um, so I just decided to do the preventative chemotherapy. So I'll be doing that for the next two years. So I'll go once every three months and getting that rituximab. But I can say that I'm very fortunate. I'm very blessed. I count my stars every day just by the simple fact that the doctor found it. You know, I felt fine. I felt great. Um, the lymph node itself at points, and when she first pointed it out, it was huge. You, you couldn't miss it. And then before I went to go see my doctor, it actually had decreased in size. So I think that it just, the stars aligned, and she was able to find it and kind of send me that way. And, I, you know, it's hard not to think about, you know, what if I, Hadn't have gone, you know, and just just stayed my course and possibly could have spread or all these what ifs. But she found it. I treated it. I feel good. I'm, I'm very blessed. I'm very fortunate. Hi there. My name is Lariana Sargent. I'm a lieutenant with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Um, I'm currently working in the heart program. I was diagnosed with breast cancer January... 24th of this year, which is 2020. Um, I had postponed and just kind of put off 
getting a mammogram. I was uh, probably close to a year overdue. And um, I urge everybody who has a wife or a female in their life to please remind them to go get that done. Um, I went in for a regular uh, annual exam with my OBGYN, and she found a lump in my breast. And um, I think I had felt it there, but I, in my mind, it seemed felt like it was more muscular because it was off to the side, so I didn't think much of it. Um, so that led to a um, diagnostic ultrasound, which showed a tumor, and that led to a biopsy, which um, confirmed that I had triple negative um, basal cell breast cancer. Um, the tumor was about an inch and a half in size, and um, I immediately had already put the wheels in motion to see a surgeon, and when I saw her, um, she said that a lumpectomy is what would be the best course of action for that, <clears throat> and um, probably radiation. So uh, that was scheduled, and on February 18th, um, I had a lumpectomy, and all that went well. The doctor said that um, everything on the peripheral ends of the tumor were negative for cancer, um, but she had sent me over to New Mexico Cancer Center to speak to an oncologist and to a radiological um, specialist. So the oncologist said that because of the type of cancer, chemo was definitely needed. Um, it's, a, it was, it's an aggressive cancer. It's fast-growing. And... Um, there could be cells throughout my, somewhere else in my body or even in, or in my breast that were in different stages of growing that couldn't be detected. So that's why the chemotherapy was needed. So I started chemotherapy on March 19th, and um, I'm still undergoing chemotherapy. I have three more rounds. I've had 16, it'll be 16 total, um, which hasn't, as anybody who's been through chemotherapy, Hasn't been easy, um, but it's close to being done. And after chemotherapy, I'll have um, radiation also. And I'll have 22 treatments of radiation before I'm completely done with all my treatment. And a follow-up with a mammogram. And um, we'll go from there. But I'm pretty confident that that will be the end of this experience and the cancer will be taken care of. Uh, hi, my name is Mark Hawkins. I'm a lieutenant from Albuquerque Fire Rescue for the past 12 years I've been in. Uh, I was diagnosed with colon rectal cancer on 11 November 2016. Um, did not know that I was dealing with the cancer at that time. Um, my symptoms were I had low energy, found out through my doctor I was anemic for a while, and then constantly, constantly using the restroom. I was using the restroom about 10 to 15 times a day for, for a while now. I, my wife was telling me probably for like two months I was constantly using the restroom like 10 to 15 times a day. Um, so went to my primary. He diagnosed me having anemia. He did all the tests. We did all the tests. Doesn't even know, did not understand why I was still going to the restroom. And finally he sent me to, a colon, to get a colonoscopy. Uh, after my colonoscopy, the doctor right away just stopped going, you know, where you're supposed to go. And, uh, when as soon as I woke up, he just told me that I have uh, cancer. Uh, the funny thing about it is, like I told him, was was it curable? He said yes, and I just started laughing. <laughs> I was still high on drugs, uh, but um, during that whole time, uh, I finally saw my first doctor I seen was the surgeon. Uh, he told me that um, the exact locations of where uh, they have an idea where the cancer was at. Um, so he told me that I had to do radiation first because in the study of Europe. They did a few studies over there saying that the radiation will decrease or actually kill the cancer. So I did my radiation first. I had 27 treatments. Um, then after that, I had uh, my surgery. Uh, the surgery was uh, not good because I ended up having a thing called a, an, an ileostomy bag. Uh, that bag is like a colostomy bag, but this surgery was reversible. Um, do not recommend it, but it was a pain in the butt. 
excuse my language, but it was. Um, did I dealt with that with so much? Um, I don't know how my wife lived. Well, that was helping me out. Lived through just dealing with me. And at the same time, I was taking chemo treatments. After seeing my oncologist, he was telling me I need to do uh, nine treatments of uh, chemo, and they went very aggressive on me. So dealing with the ileostomy bag and the chemo treatments, it really bore me down. Days like this outside at 95-degree weather, I will go outside for like five to ten minutes. I will come back, and I'll be asleep for like three, four hours. It, was, it really took a toll on me. Um, during that time, losing a whole bunch of weight, trying to switch out bags. There's days where I'll be switching out three to four bags because I was losing so much weight. And um, it, was, it took a toll on my wife as well. Um, but throughout the whole process, I finally finished the chemo. Um, waited a couple of more months through, uh, so I could have the reversible surgery. Um, but during that whole time, I got to say, everybody in the fire department helped me out extremely. Started off with... Um, People who were helping me out with radiation, you know, my counterpart over there, Loriana Sargent, she worked for me a few times, helping me out. Um, the guys at 17s, when I was there, they were helping me out uh, so much. And um, just throughout the whole process, guys working trades for me and everything else. Um, the whole cancer thing, uh, the way I felt was went really bad, especially with chemo, did not feel good at all. Um, and now dealing with this right now, after five years, I still dealing with some neuropathy with my hands and my feet, and um, I'm not liking that at all because it it ruins my day to day activity sometimes. Um, but I am glad that I don't have to don't have to uh, deal with the cancer anymore. I get to see my doctor one more time this month, and after that, uh, one more time, one more year, and then I'll be done. Uh, hopefully we missed after that. Hello. My name is David Rettinger. I'm a driver with Albuquerque Fire Rescue, currently serving in the Public Affairs Office. So um, my story is about, well, it was on Christmas Day of 2017. I had um, been having abdominal pain for a couple of days prior and uh, went to get it. I went to a... Um, Urgent care, thinking it was probably an ulcer, something like that. Uh, we did an x-ray, and it was not showing anything. So um, I set up a GI appointment for a couple weeks later and um, went home, and, and it just uh, wasn't going away. It was so uncomfortable, I couldn't sleep. But um, So I went ahead and took a visit to the ER, and we did a uh, ultrasound and, and just kind of assessed me, and they were... Not finding anything, so they, they thought it probably was something something GI related. Went back home, and and uh, it was already probably three o'clock in the morning at the time, and I had to work the next day for for Christmas Day. So I uh, went went to work, and um, probably lasted till about four o'clock in the afternoon, and pain just wasn't going away. It was kind of hard to focus at work, so I uh, called off and and went to uh, Presbyterian downtown ER. And at that time, our uh, friend of mine, uh, Dr. Ian Maduro, who is also the uh, medical director for Albuquerque Ambulance, was on shift. So he, he had ordered a CT scan. Uh, it was kind of the next step. That's when it revealed there was a, a couple smaller tumors, about two centimeters, on my pancreas. And I was in a lot of pain still. So I had gotten my first uh, fentanyl, or yeah, my, my first fentanyl uh, dose, and I immediately fell asleep, took a nap. Uh, they decided to admit me for pain control uh, for the next five days. I was getting fentanyl every three hours. And then uh, that sixth day, it just stopped. Like, I just wasn't having the pain anymore. Um, during those six days, it was really concerning because 96% of people that uh, present with pan pancreatic tumors have what's known as adenocarcinoma, and that, that can be very deadly, often six months to a year by the time they find it. Uh, so for a few days, we were waiting on a biopsy, pretty much thinking that, you know, I had just a small amount of time left. It was uh, it was pretty tough. They, they thought they noticed something on an old scan from 2009, um, in hindsight, thinking, we, we think the cancer may have started back then. It's hard to say, but 
that was good news, believe it or not, because there's another cancer, which is what I was ultimately diagnosed with, known as uh, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, or peanut. And the reason that's good is it's uh, slower growing, typically. Yeah, ultimately, uh, you know, we, we ended up getting that diagnosis. So believe it or not, I was very happy. <laughs> I said, I'll take the, the five or six year cancer at the time. That was kind of the life expectancy was five, five to seven years on average uh, versus uh, six months to a year. So and, and ever since then, it's just been uh, kind of a, a roller coaster, just learning more about the disease, uh, finding, navigating through the right doctors. Um, currently, I'm, I'm with a specialist who only treats neuroendocrine cancer, and uh, he's, in, he's in Denver. His name's Dr. Eric Liu. And of the six surgeons I've met with, he's the only one that wants to um, not do surgery at the moment because I, I still got the same tumor burden. Uh, we had learned that it metastasized to a couple, couple lymph nodes, and... I've got about 20 small tumors in my liver, which sounded bad. And I had a part of my liver um, shrunk. It, they thought I had a surgery, a resection, and I didn't. Um, despite all of that, he feels very confident that, you know, that I, this is still pretty manageable for him. So um, the good news is I don't have any symptoms of my tumors, really. Uh, I don't make enough uh, digestive juices. That's some, one of the functions of your pancreas. It, mine's a little shriveled up, but my sugars are good, and so I'm I'm on a monthly uh, injection called uh, lanreotide. It's a somatostatin hormone analog, and and it's a sixteen thousand dollar shot. <laughs> I've been doing almost for almost two years now, uh, every month, and it, it's known to slow these tumors down uh, at least for a few years. And you know I expect a little growth, but uh, it's been I've been very blessed because I've had no growth in the two years that I've been getting monitored. Um, hopefully, you know, I can be one of these patients. I've met patients that have been fighting this for 20 years. I mean, there's always people that come up. There was a gentleman, um, I was going to get his name. His name's Donnell Liam Mighty. He was a CSU coach. Uh, he just passed away a couple of days ago, but he had, he was about a year older than me, 40, he's 47. Um, same diagnosis, but you know, different, different outcomes. Steve Jobs was probably one of the most famous people who had had, uh, pancreatic or endocrine cancer, uh, you know, and he died seven years later. So, you know, initially I was, I was really bummed out. I was like, if this billionaire, you know, can't survive longer than seven years, then what is a firefighter's chance <laughs> of surviving? But uh, like I said, I've met, I've met a lot of people on the other side of that where, where I feel like you're almost back in the same boat before you had cancer. You just don't know what tomorrow has. And, and um, you know, hopefully, hopefully I have a long time. So if you're going to have this cancer, I guess I would say that I have one of the best outcomes so far. And, uh, you know, I'm still working out, like to lift heavy weights, and uh, I'm going to continue to do that as long as I can. So, yeah, that's, that's it. All right, so I'm sure all of you have done uh, quite a lot of research about your specific type of cancer, but just as a, in general for, you know, everybody in AFR, what are some general cancer terms that might help us out dealing with patients or um, just so we understand if, if we're talking to somebody who's had cancer? So in the simplest terms of what I understand about cancer is cancer is a mutation essentially of your cell. So our cells, you know, back to think back to your old school, high school biology, they grow, they split, and eventually they die with cancer cells is there is markers and DNA and kind of stop gaps that cancer does not adhere to. And so you just have these cancer cells that don't follow a cell cycle and they just grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and there's nothing that stops them um, eventually with cancer cells is they become too much for our immune system to combat um, I think as uh, Lieutenant Hawkins says sometimes your immune system doesn't recognize essentially what is a foreign body in your system um, so that's the problem with cancer cells is that there's the there's the problem for them to just keep growing and unchecked. And when you have these cells grow unchecked, that's where they have the chance to spread into other parts of the system and to adhere to major organs and to infect your lungs and metastasize to your brain. And essentially you just have these lumps of cells um, 
pretty much causing havoc in your body. Um, the staging for cancer, um, it gets very, very specific to the cancer that you have. But for in general terms, uh, people are, are pretty versed in stage one, two, three, and four. And it's just a matter of the spread of the cancer cells. So if you have stage one, it's pretty localized. I had stage one cancer initially with not Hodgkin's lymphoma because they found it in my neck. So they classified that as stage one. As it spreads out to further parts of your body, that's when they go into stage two, three, and four. So for my instance is because I had it in my neck, but then it also had metastasized to my thigh, that automatically made me a stage four. That's not a death sentence. It's just a matter of defining what kind of cancer you have. So it's just a matter of in your body, is it localized? Is it just in this one spot? Like Lieutenant Sergeant here, you know, is it just in her breast or it's in her breast and it's also spread to her lung? Those are the kind of the stagings that were there. And like I said, there's much more complex stagings to it, but we won't get into that. The very minimum is... You know, you talk to someone stage one, two, three, or four, it's kind of just where it has in their body. But again, with cancer, you know, from what it was 15, 20 years ago, it's not a death sentence. You respond to a patient and they tell you they have stage four liver cancer. That's not, you know, they could have had that for five, 10, 15 years. Um, it's just a matter of where it, has in, where it is in their body. And as Marco said, um, there's the different stages and the different types um, and because there's different types of cancer cells, that's why there's different treat treatments. That's why everybody doesn't get the same chemotherapy. That is why not everybody gets radiation. Um, some people get chemotherapy before they have surgery to remove a tumor to shrink that. Um, some people, it goes the other, other direction. Um, just within breast cancer alone, I've discovered, I don't know, six, seven different types. Um, in my own family... My mom had breast cancer in her 70s. She had a different type. My aunt had breast cancer in her 80s, which was her sister who had a different type. Um, my cousin right now had it. She was diagnosed a year after or a month after me at the age of 86 and had a different type. And so that just because you have cancer doesn't mean that everybody's going to be treated in the same manner. So talking about chemo, um, with, with uh, my particular case, chemotherapy is often used to treat neuroendocrine cancers uh, depending on the grade. So there's, we talked about the stages of cancer, but there's also grades of cancer. We're referring to the rate of growth. Uh, with, with my particular biopsy, um, it, it was shown to have a, a grade one, which is very slow growing. Uh, so that was good. It's different doctors have different treatment plans. Surprisingly, it's not always going to be the same. So, unfortunately, I, I, I had met with some different doctors, and they, they prescribed a chemo for, I think, about six months. It was an oral chemo. And um, in hindsight, I've learned that for, for my particular grade that it's never shown to benefit patients. Um, but there are individuals with, with neuroendocrine cancer who have... Who've, been on chemo indefinitely for years, two, three years, probably more. And, and so we, we learned about how different people tolerate it. We had some discussions with people that were on the same drugs, and, and some people have no problems with that drug, and other people have every adverse reaction you can think of. So for me, it was mostly nausea, and uh, there was a second component to my treatment that was a, a, a little more of a... I would say more of a hardcore drug I took for four days stacked on top of my 10 days of the first treatment. And that one was definitely tough. Uh, the first uh, the first month that I'd done it, the anti-emetics that I was prescribed didn't do anything. So I <clears throat> was on my way to work and I was just woke up very nauseous. I started vomiting. Uh, I pulled over, went to one of our fire stations. <laughs> I was just, I, I was Throwing up as soon as bile would collect in my stomach, uh, I tried to get some uh, medication to help, but it, it ultimately didn't. Um, I had to go back to my doctor's office and get an injection of an antiemetic that, that was very effective. So uh, that was a terrible experience, but from then on, it was pretty much just nausea and fatigue, um, and, and ultimately, we, know, we didn't have any changes in my cancer and 
when we did finally see specialists, they they uh, never gave me that again. So I was pretty happy. But I just remember the feeling in your body is just this is not good for me, and your body just rejects it most of the time, and and you just kind of you're you're very worried about what it's going to do to you 10 years later because sometimes you know they, they do cause other types of cancer and you just weigh the pros and cons of whether you really need this drug to to, <clears throat> to treat you currently so um yeah hopefully i won't have to do that again but uh, like i said with mine it's going to be a marathon and I, I intend on doing several different treatments over the <clears throat> next several years um so hopefully hopefully it won't be anytime soon though so for me, the um, side effects, I've been on three different, well, actually sort of four different uh, chemo drugs. The first was a combination, um, and they supposedly were the harshest ones. One of them was called the Red Devil. That was like the nickname for it because it was red. Uh, the nurse had to push it and um, IV push or into my port, and my pee was red for, I don't know, three days, whatever. It took a while to go through my system. I keep relating, like in the beginning especially, I kept relating the feeling of chemo and what I felt like as to being hungover, like being extremely hungover. My nausea, though, wasn't as bad. And in my head, my preconception of side effects was vomiting all the time. Um, When my mom went through chemotherapy, which was in 2001, I think, um, that's kind of what she went through, and I don't know what drug she went through, and I'm sure things have advanced since then. The drugs that they give you to counteract the side effects seemed to work really well for me as far as the nausea stuff. I had severe headaches, which wasn't like at the top of the list for side effects from the chemo, the, that combination of chemo. But for the first week, I just felt shitty. I just felt tired, and I felt like I was hungover, and... The chemo brain fog is a real, real thing. There's so many things that, like I, when people tell me we did this two weeks ago or we talked two weeks ago, I, f- I feel like it, it was a month ago. I feel like sm- since March 19th, it's been four years that I've been doing chemo. It's a lot of it's a fog. I do remember things. <laughs> it's kind of like, and, and I relate it to being drunk too. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of like alcohol component in this. You, you remember what you're doing or you think what you know what you're doing at the time, but then when you look back at it, you're like, holy shit, why did I do that? Or, you know, so it's, 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 hard, it's a hard thing to explain other than that's the only thing I can relate it to. The other um, side effects that I did not know about was I wake up completely drenched. Like my clothes are drenched, my sheets are drenched. And that will happen. One night it happened to me three times within a two-and-a-half-hour two time frame. Um, I don't know if this is just for women. I don't know if it's just something that women go through. But my doctor explained it as my hormonal system is fighting against the chemo also. Like it's everything, every system in your body is going, what the heck is going on? And kind of rebelling against it. You know, I, I lost my hair on my head. I didn't lose my eyelashes or my eyebrows. Uh, there was a time that my skin just sloughed off, and I don't have fingerprints now because my phone won't react to my finger, uh, to my thumbprint. That I didn't expect. The fatigue, like, all of a sudden it'll hit me. So the second drug I started taking, uh, it was supposed to be, it's called Taxol. It's supposed to be an easier drug um, with just some body aches. Um, for me, the body aches hit me, like, severe, like, really, really severe, and it felt like I had the flu times 10, you know, it was just really bad. They switched me and I had shortness of breath, which was not, once again, like the headaches on the other drug. It wasn't like not on the list, but it wasn't high on the list as having, as being a side effect. So my doctor was really concerned about the shortness of breath, even sent me for a chest x-ray. And because of that, she switched the drug to like the new improved version of, of Taxol of the same drug. And since then, the side effects, the edge has been taken off, and the shortness of breath has pretty much went away, which is really nice because I, was, I would be sitting down and have shortness of breath, which is, if you've never had it before, it's, which most of us haven't because we're healthy you know, firefighters, it's a strange thing. So those are, those are kind of the, the, 
unexpected side effects that I've had that were uncommon, which like Dave said, every everybody responds to these drugs differently. And, and even from week to week, my body responded differently. So it's just not put in a box and this is what you get kind of thing for sure. So uh, my... My treatments and uh, my side effects were a lot as well. I have a list here, so I won't forget because, you know, during this chemo, even after having chemo, I sometimes forget a lot of things. When I started off after my, like, second or third treatment, um, I started getting the black hands, black feet, which uh, I was made fun of a lot. Also, cold. I could not deal with a cold. When I was going through my chemotherapy, I was uh, in the middle of the summertime just like this, was this kind of temperature, and I was always walking around with a a sweatshirt or always with gloves, I was constantly cold. Especially when I was working with RMS, they had the AC going on in there and I was had a heater underneath the table just so I could keep my feet warm. Could not drink anything. Everything always had to be room temperature, nothing else. Every time I take something like mild cold, I'll drink it. I'll feel like needles going down my throat. It was, uh, wasn't really good at that point. When I was wearing my bag, because losing so much weight, just uh, for it to stick on there, we had to like expand or push or separate the wound where it's at and trying to put the, the bag on it was, a, was the sticker or whatever, the adhesive that we use. But there was times, where, like I said, I used two or three, sometimes four bags a day for a while because of the weight loss. And it was constantly, it, it hurt sometimes when my wife would have to put uh, the, the stuff just to... Uh, for it to, uh, to adhere to my body, it will sting a lot of that portion where they cut open. And it like there was times where I was literally crying because it really hurt. That's one of the things that I didn't really like. Uh, forgetfulness, like uh, Lieutenant Sergeant over here was saying, I constantly forget. My wife was telling me that I'll have a conversation with her for about three or four time, uh, times of one thing, and I will completely forget every single time. So now I just tell her, like, I'm sorry, baby, it was the chemo. I forgot what you say. <laughs> Anyway, um, I could not sleep. Uh, they gave me medications uh, for me to go, to go to bed, but I could not sleep for anything. I was watching movies, like, all night long. Um, could not eat because uh, it felt like metal in my, in my mouth. Every time um, you'll get some good food, my wife will cook some good food. Smells really good, but as soon as you put in, you take a bite, it, yeah, it was not good. It tasted like metal. So uh, basically the whole time I was just, was the bag, because of the bag, I was eating constantly salty foods, like high doses of salty foods. Tired a majority of the time. I was one of, one out of the 11 people that the, my surgeon said that I would lose my hair. So I lost my hair, I lost my eyebrows, my eyelashes, and, you know, people like uh, a certain uh, driver at Station 17 is like, yeah, hey, nice eyelashes. I didn't have any at that time. But now after the effects... After going through the chemo, yes, I still have my neuropathy and trying to work out constantly and everything, it just puts a, my body, it just like tires out and I'm always constantly sore. So it's like I want to go work out. I see these guys over there at the academy, they're working out. I want to be there working out with them, but I can't do the, the things that they do. And it just like constantly, constantly sore and uh, I get tired, just like, just constantly tired. But, and that's about it. Me, myself, uh just like uh, Lieutenant Sergeant, just fatigue, nausea. And like she said, I think the perfect example is just being hungover. And that's how I felt. I felt hungover were to the point where like water tasted gross and I couldn't even drink water, tried Gatorade or, you know, anything else just to try to get, to, you know, try, try to stay hydrated. But everything tasted gross. Um, the good thing with mine as opposed to, I think, you know, my fellow, my friends here is that I went once every three weeks, so my symptoms lasted about a week and a half, and I think um, that was part of the problem, too. It kind of unexpected as I, I was always so sure by the following Wednesday I was going to be good, and the following Wednesday I was going to be good, following Wednesday I would be good, and I think my third cycle, Wednesday, I still felt crappy, and I think that's where it took the mental toll on me because I was ready to feel good on Wednesday, and I didn't feel good on Wednesday. And I didn't feel good on Thursday and I didn't feel good on Friday. And I think that's why I had a little bit of my pity party. And that's, I think, things you're not prepared for. You know, I'm just like, hey, they can tell you you're going to have nausea. You're going to have vomiting. You might have neuropathy. You might not be able to sweet. You might, not, 
might not be able to sleep and that's to be expected. And they give you the drugs and they say, Hey, if you are nauseous, take this, take this, take this. If you can't sleep, take this, take this. They're, they're pretty keen to the symptoms and they give you all the stuff you need to combat it. But I think at the same time, the mental aspect of it, I think got to me on the third round. And, and that one was, that one was my toughest and not so much just because of the symptoms. Cause I've already dealt with them, but they just lasted longer than I wanted them to. And I think I had set myself up for failure and, that was the, the the crappy part of this chemo. I think, too, uh, Marco, that I've discovered after having done it for so long that it builds up in your system, you know, and, and that's why it, it lasts longer. It just doesn't, it doesn't go away. And that's what happened with me also with the, the first combination of drugs was, like, I, f- I would feel t- generally good after a week, and then it, it lasted 10 days, and then it lasted two weeks, you know, and... Yeah, that's that's when you, I think that's when I found also too that it uh, mentally and emotionally hit me a little bit harder. This isn't going to get better. This isn't what I expected. Yeah, you guys are right. At my point, at my seventh treatment, I was like already going to go in there, and I'm just like, this is my last treatment. I'm done. This is it. I can't mentally. I cannot do it anymore. And uh, luckily for the nurses that were there, they just saw my face like right away. I didn't not even said a single word, and every single one of the nurses that were there, they just came over and just started talking to me, not mentioning that that I looked like I wanted to quit. But after my four hours of the treatment, they all just, like, boosted me. They kind of like, you got two more. Just take two more, keep on going. But like they were saying, mentally, it took a toll on me, a big toll on me. It's funny how much I uh, think back to... <laughs> the academy and how i kept telling myself going through that this is temporary mm-hmm. this is temporary this is temporary and and this and the closer you get to the end like you know you're saying you have when you had two treatments you know when i hit four treatments when i had seven treatments le- left i was like i don't know i don't know i don't know if i could do this but when i hit four i was like i can see the light at the end of the tunnel at the end of this month i'm going to be done so that was the thing that just kept going through my head is this is temporary, this is temporary, this is not going to last forever. Okay, Mark, so it sounds like you're the only one who's been through radiation. Could you describe that process for everybody? Just uh, how long does it take, what's involved with it? Okay, so when the surgeon told me that I needed radiation first because of the study, I don't know about them, but they did the study in Europe, that they say they do radiation first to shrink uh, the cancer cell or possibly kill it. Um, so that's what I did. So he gave me 27 radiations that I needed to take. And that was every day, Monday through Friday. Saturday and Sunday, nobody's working there, but it was every day, Monday through Friday. I could not skip. Um, the process was I had to go over there. And what they do is the location of where your cancer is at, they kind of like map it out. And they put these um, stickers in where I needed to go. In my location, it was actually my rear end. So I had to, I had some about three or four stickers that they put in back of me. And they put me into a machine, um, kind of like a, an MRI. So I had to lay on my belly, put me through the machine. And what the radiation did, it only took like 30 seconds to 45 seconds of just radiation, each dose. And it just targets that specific area. And that was it. So I ended up taking 27 treatments, and that was just a, a specific area that they were targeting in that location. And I felt fine. Until my last treatment when I just finally felt tired. That was it. I just felt tired on just my last treatment. And uh, I was working. That, I went back to work that day. And I just literally called uh, Chief Kim and said, hey, I, I just feel tired. So he was able to just get me removed. And, uh, and that was my last day that I worked. Okay. So I mentioned off the top that uh, firefighters have a 9% chance higher of getting cancer and a 14% higher chance of dying from cancer and this information was gathered during a uh, NIOSH study Um, in 2007 it studied San Francisco Chicago Philadelphia and it did show a correlation between you know the more time spent at a fire scene being exposed to uh, those hazards led to an increase in cancer so uh, then there are some other studies done. 2014, there's a study known as the Nordic study, and 2006, 
uh, called the LeMasters meta-analysis. So all three of these studies are showing a correlation between um, the profession of firefighting and an increase in getting cancer. Now, with all that, the state of New Mexico has um, a presumptive cause law that went into effect, and that's just saying that, you know, if you get cancer, it's presumed that you got it um, because of being a firefighter. But I guess there's a lot more details that I'll have you guys discuss now that I wasn't aware of prior to this. So with my particular cancer, with breast cancer, stipulation in the law states that I would have to be employed by a state agent or an agency in the state of New Mexico uh, for five years, and I would have to be the age of 40 or younger. Um, I'm older than the age of 40, so that didn't cover me, even though I have worked um, in the state of New Mexico as a firefighter for 21 years, one at one agency, which is a federal agency, and 12 years with the state, or I'm sorry, with the city. The strange thing is, is that, um, or the ironic thing is that women typically don't get sent to get mammograms until they are 40 years old. At the age of 40, that's when they typically start doing them annually or biannually. So I was excluded from being able to be covered from, or be covered by the state or workman's comp. And I guess three out of four of us in this room were in the same position. Right, Dave? That's correct. Uh, with, with my case, it was, it's such a rare cancer. Um, I, I was, uh, I, I knew it'd be tough to, to put, putting the burden of proof on the employees, you know, you really have to show uh, some good evidence of that. Um, so, so for me, it was a little more difficult, and I, I really wasn't sure. I was, I was uh, talking to <clears throat> a couple of my physicians as to whether or not this could be exposure, and they really don't know what caused it. They wasn't a yes or a no. They just don't know. So uh, mine is pretty rare, so it doesn't really come up as one of the top 10 cancers that we're seeing that are more prevalent uh, with, with exposures. No, I wasn't covered for that. Uh, for me, it was just I wasn't in the department long enough. For them to pay the workman's company, I had to be in for 10 years. I was in nine years. And my previous years didn't count as well. So if I was in for 10, they would have taken care of me. And there was no, like, cutoff age or anything for, like, uh, Lieutenant Sergeant over here. But it was just, like, that was it. And for me, as they mentioned in the group, I was very fortunate that I was actually covered. And that was just because of the length of service that I have. I have about to start 18 years. So for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you have to have more than 15 years in the fire service. So I was very fortunate that, obviously, I had that. But at the same time, it kind of just... You know, and listening to Lorena and Jaquez and Ms. Ranger is just like, if I had 14 years, I wouldn't have been covered, but I have 15 years, I am covered. So it seems kind of arbitrary. I know it, it kind of leads into, you know, do you want to cover them? But it just, you would get cancer at 10 years, you can get cancer at nine years, you can get cancer at a year on the job, but we're not going to cover until you have 15 years. And everything that I've tried to do in research, I haven't found anything that says, why 15 years? I don't understand that part. All right, I'd like to hear what you guys think, but from my point of view, I think our department's done an excellent job of uh, trying to be proactive and just taking all the measures that are recognized nationally as uh, great prevention efforts. So to start with, we're moving towards a clean cab apparatus. We've got the interstitial spaces. They've gone through all the stations and made sure we've got those two doors separating the living area and the, and the bay We've got the diesel exhaust filters, uh, no bunkers in the living areas. We've got washing machines installed recently, baby wipes. They've made a good point to educate us on wiping down your neck because you can get the uh, carcinogens coming through your flash hood, setting up decon at a fire. Uh, they'll swap out our bunkers when they get dirty and wash them for us. They'll swap out your flash hood. Uh, we do annual physicals to include VO2 max and some of the other things that have been in place for a while are, you know, having a safety monitor the air quality. So they're letting you know if it's above 35 uh, parts per million of CO and in that case, and you need to have your SCBA on. Although that one's a little bit more controversial because these carcinogens can still be present. It's, it's not the best way to measure if there's carcinogens present. So uh, that's debatable, but it is a 
a measure we have in place. And then, you know, just having the SCBAs, we all have them, but I think we need to do a better job of using them, you know, at all times. I haven't seen anybody ever make entry into a structure that isn't on air, but it's right. That's kind of right at the threshold. I've seen people ventilating, you know, busting out a window and sucking in some smoke if they're outside or trying to ventilate off a ladder um, when they're outside. Uh, just the other day, we were on a fire just off of Broadway and uh, we were breathing in smoke for a little bit, you know, because we're trying to do all this work outside. It was defensive fire. And uh, we just need to recognize that, you know, if you're if there's smoke, that's that that's uh, got carcinogens in it. And we need to go ahead and go on air at that time. So those are some of the things that I think we can improve on. I don't know if you guys had any ideas of uh, what you think we can get better at. We are, you know, admin wise, they're, they're making a lot of efforts. But uh, what do you think about like culture wise that we need to work on? I think just like you said, you know, you'd be outside. I was just thinking when you gave that example that on every car fire, we, you, you have your SCBA on because of what is burning in the car. And if we just keep that in mind, just because you're outside doesn't mean that you shouldn't. If there's smoke, you should have it on, period, because you don't know when the direction of wind is going to change and all that smoke is going to be on top of you. Yeah, and I think it's um, like we talked about, it's, it was always a badge of honor to have the helmet with the, the most melted visor and the bunkers I've gotten teased because I started on the rescue pretty early on in my career. So I've always had the cleanest bunkers because <laughs> rescue, rescue drivers had, had, didn't get real dirty. So I, you know, to almost try harder to get them dirty, you know, and have that, have that, that black on there. You know, one thing that I'm curious about is I know we, we've uh, eliminated bringing bunker gear into the, the stations, uh, but you guys tell me if we still have guys on calls, you know, that are still going into the houses with their bunker gear on. It's really no difference, and it's even worse because now, you know, if you kneel down to assess a patient, you know, if you're rubbing anything off under the carpet, that you know, their baby crawls on the next day or, you know, all those things are things to think about. Um, one thing I try to tell people is, you know, and, and I don't know if I'm going to speak just for myself, but it's probably similar with you guys. But, you know, the first time you hear that you have cancer, you're, you're, one of my first thoughts was, oh, my God, what did I do in my life that has led up to this that, to cause this cancer? And, um, you know, the things we do in our job, outside of our job, a lot of it's, it's, it's uh, very dangerous, but over long term. So you don't really see those uh, effects in, in the short term. And so we really want to get better about, you know, especially younger guys. I mean, if you do ever have something like this happen to you, at least you can say, well, you know, hopefully it wasn't because of my fire career because I did all those things to eliminate exposures and getting cancer. Um, you know, where a lot of us can't say that because we didn't really grow up in that area, that era, you know, but, but things are changing now for the better. It's really exciting to see uh, how, how hard the, the administration and, and, our, and our union, you know, nationwide even, has gone to uh, to bring this this issue to the forefront. One of the things, like uh, Lieutenant Sergeant was talking about, we do still have to take care of our drivers. We really do. Um, they are really exposed to everything, especially the ones that are right in the front, uh, the first in truck. We really do have to take care of those guys because they're still sucking in a lot of that smoke. We got to find a way to take care of those guys because I don't want them to be here like we are right now. I think what... As far as taking care of them, I, I don't want to say this in a harsh way, but I think it's everybody's individual responsibility. And as long as we can recognize as a culture that it's okay for a driver to put an SCBA on <coughs> and not uh, give them a hard time about it because they're, they're out there and they're exposed. And like I said, at any point, any of us can be in a position where the wind's going to shift and all that smoke is all, all of a sudden on top of us, <coughs> whether you're ventilating or whether you're running a pump. Uh, but it comes down to, I think, our individual responsibility to take the initiative to, to at least have it readily ab available and for us as a culture and other members of the department to not look down upon that. I think it's good. I think our admin and it's just it's reteaching and retooling. And I think I relate this to, you know, my other careers as a nurse in firefighting. It's 
it's an evolving process and you learn something, you know, what are we going to learn today that we didn't know yesterday that we can apply for tomorrow? Um, you know, I was very fortunate enough where I came in, what, 17 years ago, I used to sleep with my bunker gear next to the bed because that was just what we did, you know, just so you could get to the truck faster so you could be more aware faster. And we had bunker gear second days where we just would wear our bunker gear essentially all day the second day, whether we were in the TV room or whether we were in the bathroom, we just had our bunker gear. So fast forward, you know, 17 years and we don't do that stuff anymore. And it just takes a change in culture. It takes, you know, people like us who have, you know, the, the negative aspect of it of getting cancer because of these things and being exposed to these carcinogens um, for, you know, now you go into a station, you see the posters, you know, telling people about it. Um, it just, it's reteaching and retooling. And what do we learn today, you know, that we did yesterday, you know, we can, we can adapt and we can change. And I think our department's very proactive on that. I think we're doing great things, but there's still obviously a lot more to be done. It has to do, it has to do a lot too. Um, when we started doing the post-decon, I, I hear a lot of the guys say, well, we really want to expose. We got a little bit of smoke on us. Why do we have to get deconned? Just do it. Just to protect yourself. That's that's my thing. Just do it. Just to protect yourself. And since this COVID thing has been happening, I noticed that a lot of the stations, a lot of the guys have like a, a bucket with a bleach, and they, they step on it before they even come in. Obviously, no bunkers in. And I uh, know one station is actually not letting the guys come in with the boots after an emergency. They did change out into their tennis shoes, which is kind of good, not just because of the COVID, but actually we could do that just for ourselves. You know, to continue on. Well, I'd like to thank you all for coming on. I know this is a sensitive topic and, uh, you know, it's probably hard for you guys to talk about yourself like this. And sometimes, you know, from a from an outsider, you know, it's hard for me sometimes to know what to say to somebody with cancer, too. So, again, thanks for coming on. And do you have any closing thoughts, takeaways for people? Um, I think that what is being provided for us in our department right now by administration and by the union as far as all the ways that we can prevent getting cancer, we need to capitalize on those and we need to utilize them. They're there for a reason and there's four reasons sitting in this room right now. So I think we all can probably do a better job at, at making sure that we follow through with those, with those things. And I think that the other thing is that we need to listen to our bodies more and we need to make sure that if something doesn't feel right, it probably isn't right. And go get checked up. Go get checked out. Follow up with your doctor. And as far as like in my case, make sure you do your scheduled exams as far as mammograms or whatever it might be. Because if things are caught early, they can be treated. If they're not caught early then all of us might not be sitting here right now. So that's kind of what I would like to convey to everybody out there. Um.